We're very, very blessed here uh, with all the people, with all of their different gifts. Uh, one more time, will you praise God for this incredible band? I love these guys. Um, they lead with humility, and it's really cool. Uh, my name is Danny Householder, and uh, I am a pastor here at Lutheran Church of Hope in Ames. I'm so glad that we get to hang out together. You hear it all the time. You heard it already today. We believe it's no accident that you're here. We've been praying for you, and it is so wonderful to be able to worship with you today. We're in week two of our new series called Five Habits of Highly Effective Christians. What we're doing is we're taking a look at what the Bible says, how Christians ought to conduct their lives. We follow Jesus' example, and the more that you hang around someone, the more time that you spend with them, the more you start to reflect them. So we're hanging out with Jesus. We're spending time in God's Word, and we're seeing how that changes our lives. Today we're in week two, and we're talking about growing up. Has anybody ever told you to grow up? It sounds a little offensive, insensitive at first, especially if you were to say that, who's not, say that to someone who's not ready to hear it. I haven't talked about her in six months, and so I'm really proud of myself, but this is uh, our niece, Addison Rose. Uh, these were her 10-month pictures. She's now 11 months old, and I just, I mean, really, I'll find any excuse to put her on this board. Um, just imagine if Abby and I ever have kids, it's, it's probably going to be really, really embarrassing for all of us. But can you imagine if I said to her, oh, grow up, grow up, what? No, of course I wouldn't. Are you serious? But I'm thinking about all of the different things that she can get away with that I simply can't. For example, a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, we were at the Christmas Eve, Eve, Eve service at our Hope West Des Moines campus. My dad was on stage preaching, and Addison was sitting next to me, and she's knocked out. And I imagine if my dad was looking out over the congregation, and he saw me passed out in the front row, what might he do? <laughs> she can get away with things that I can't get away with. When we were at my parents' house, she's on the floor, and out of nowhere, she just puts her toe in her mouth. And it's kind of cute when she does it, but what if I sat down right now and just put my toe in my mouth if I could do that, right? And then as the years go on, maybe you get a little bit older, like some kids in our, uh, in our neighborhood, every now and then I'll see them out with a lemonade stand. What if I decided I'm going to set up a lemonade stand across the street from them and sell lemonade for half off, run them out of business, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ambitious, it's cute, right? I hope that you would tell me, grow up. Like, there are certain things that children can do that maybe at a certain point you just don't really get away with anymore, like maybe sometimes always being the center of attention and being okay with it and everyone's fine with it. This is my wife massaging Addison um, on my parents' floor, and everybody's just staring at Addison getting a massage, and if that doesn't look like peace, <laughs> I don't know what does. And every single day since then, I've asked Abby, may I please have one of those? And she says, my fingers aren't big enough, so. You know, it's like, hey, no, grow up, right? Like, at a certain point, there does come a time where I would hope you might tell me, okay, maybe you shouldn't behave like that anymore. Because uh, it's not necessarily to prohibit you from enjoying your life, but instead it's to allow you to start to enjoy new experiences. To help you enjoy things, to grow, because you're ready to experience those kinds of things. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, Paul is doing this with the book, or with the church in Ephesus. Everyone say Ephesus. Ephesus. It's my favorite church name in the Bible, Ephesus. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul says this to the uh, Ephesians, no prolonged infancies among us, please. Sounds a little bit insensitive at first, but then he continues, God wants us to grow up. He wants us to have new experiences. 
to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, like Christ in everything. You've been hanging around Christ. It's time that we live like him. It's time that we grow up like him. At the beginning of this chapter in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is pleading with them. Paul is saying, I, a prisoner of the Lord, I am pleading with you to live to the fullness of your calling. Live a life that is worthy of your calling. Be spiritually mature. Grow up, he's telling them. He's not saying this to children. He's saying this to grown-ups who are leading a church in Ephesus. They've been Christians for a little while now, although they are probably fairly new to their faith. Paul is not telling them it's time for you to stop having fun. He's saying it's time for you to start enjoying different experiences in your life that you haven't gotten to yet because you're ready. It's time to grow up. Now, I think that sometimes this makes us feel like we have pressure on ourselves as Christians. Oh my goodness, it's time to grow up. What do I have to do? I mean, if I'm supposed to live like Jesus, I don't know if I can do that. He was so perfect. He was God. How can I possibly do that? Well, it might surprise you what Paul says. Now, this, uh, this really convicts me because I have dedicated my life to being a student of the Bible. I've dedicated my career to being, hopefully, a teacher of the Bible. I spent four years in grad school studying this stuff full time, reading the Old Testament, reading the New Testament, learning Greek, learning Hebrew. It's not just me. me. There's dozens of pastors across Hope's campuses who have spent countless hours in classrooms earning master's degrees in theology and divinity, and it never ends. It never stops. We fill our minds with all sorts of information and knowledge. We learn Greek. We learn Hebrew. So we can not only just read the, the translations in English, but so we can go back and read them in their earliest documents, their earliest forms. When I was in my Old Testament survey class, one of my finals, what we actually had to do is he would list off just random prophecies from the Old Testament, and we had to name which prophet said it and why we think that they said it. We couldn't just guess. We had to name it. Now, please don't come up to me after church and put me on the spot, because pastors feel vulnerable after sermons, and now's not the time for that. <laughs> Some of you really test me, though, and it's fine. Oh, no. But this is convicting, because no matter what is in my head, no matter all the knowledge that I feel like I've picked up, none of it equates to spiritual maturity. You do not need to be a pastor. You do not need to go to seven Bible studies a week. You do not need to learn Greek. You do not need to learn Hebrew. You do not, you do not need to have every single piece of information about the life of Jesus, all of his followers, and those who came before him. Instead, Paul says something very simple to the Ephesians. This is what your calling looks like. This is what maturity in the Christian faith looks like. Be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. United in spirit, binded together in peace. That's surprising, isn't it? That's relieving, too. It doesn't say anything about what you know in your head. Instead, it talks about what you're experiencing in your heart and what you've expressed from your heart. That's a challenge for me to accept sometimes because I do spend a lot of time in my head. Anybody here have a hard time getting out of their own head? Sometimes I have a hard time getting out of my own head and I think that, okay, well, what's happening up here? Let's say this is my brain. It's kind of noodly. And I think that whatever happens up here is what leads to my maturity. And Paul's convicting us. He says, no, I want you to dig deeper than that. When we think about growing up, we oftentimes think about literally, like going up to high places, growing up in height. Maybe we're talking about growing up metaphorically in height, but nonetheless getting up, like going higher. 
But Paul is asking us to do something else. When I was younger, um, my siblings and I, we would always measure our heights on a door in my parents' house. To this day, this door, it's the pantry in their kitchen, still has all the markings of our height from when we were growing up. You can see from this picture here that I had a problem. My brother looked like my uncle, and my sister looked like my older sister, but she's two years younger than me. I was really insecure about my height. Up until about eighth grade, I was the shortest kid, boy or girl, in my grade, and it bothered me. I didn't like being small. My dad is really tall. His entire family is really tall. My brother's tall. My sister's tall. If you want to be a householder, you like have to be above six feet. I don't get it. It's just frustrating. I was worried about it. And as we would mark our heights against the wall, I always had this one up on my sister because according to our heights on this door, rather, I was always maybe even just a millimeter taller than my sister, just a millimeter taller than her. And it was interesting because when we'd go out in public, people stopped asking, is she your younger sister? Instead, they would ask, is she your twin? Or they would eventually ask, how much older is she than you? Because she was bigger than me and it bothered me. But I was like, no, the door says that I'm taller than her. The door says that I'm bigger. The door says that I've grown up more. Years later, and after I had finally grown a little bit, my parents told me and my sister told me that she was, in fact, taller than me when we were younger. But she didn't want me to feel bad, and so when she would measure me, she would always mark the box up just a little bit, <laughs> just so I wouldn't feel bad. It's funny, she was more mature than me, and it had nothing to do with being taller than me, did it? I mean, she knew in her head that I was insecure about being small, but that wouldn't have mattered if she didn't care in her heart how I felt. I think Paul is asking us to dig a little deeper. What does it actually look like to have maturity? I use that silly illustration to point out a couple of maturity myths. The first one is we oftentimes think that spiritual maturity must look a certain way. You have to have had read the certain books. You have to have gone to the certain studies. You have to have hung out with the right people. You have to have the right answers. It must look a certain way. You must have the certain accolades. Whatever that might be, it must look a certain way. But that can't be true. The second myth that we run into is that spiritually mature people know everything. Well, I think that I'm a grown-up. Like I, Some of you might not think that I'm a grown-up. But either I'm wrong about that or I'm not a grown-up because I don't know everything. And to our great surprise, when we do grow up, we're like, oh my goodness, there's more about this world that I don't know than I do know. And it can be kind of scary. It is a myth to believe that maturity must look a certain way and that mature people know everything. Neither of those things are true. I mean, think about it. How immature is it actually to believe that in order... To, how immature is it to believe... That in order to be mature, you have to look a certain way and you have to have certain things. It's quite immature. When children lose something that they think they have to have, they freak out. But when adults lose something or when maybe something's taken away from them, if you sit, uh, you plop down on the floor and you begin to cry and scream until you have to fall down and take a nap, like people will think you're immature, right? No, it's not mature to get up to high places and to have all the things and to look a certain way. Instead, mature grown-ups and adults, they're not so concerned with the high places. Instead, they're willing to kneel down to the floor and maybe to care and talk with that child who's freaking out over something that they'll one day understand doesn't matter that much. 
Sometimes growing up means going lower. Sometimes growing up means growing deeper. Immature people knowing everything, we have a, a, a word, a, a term, a name for people who think they know everything. Know-it-alls. I don't know a know-it-all that I actually think is mature. Now, I'm not thinking of anything, anyone specifically in my mind right now. I hope you don't think that. But we don't think know-it-alls are mature. Sometimes the best thing that we can do to grow up is to allow the things that live in our mind, that we believe that we have to know, the most important things in our lives, to allow them to instead take a downward trip from our minds to our hearts. Sometimes growing up means allowing those important things in our lives to go from our heads down to our hearts. It's one thing to know a lot. Maybe you're trying to know everything so that you don't make any mistakes, and maybe it's true you won't make any mistakes, but you also might not make a difference. Maybe you could prevent yourself from making mistakes, but in the same time you might prevent yourself from making a difference. It is one thing to know things in your head, but it is a beautiful thing to experience things in your heart and to express things from your heart. This is what the Bible is inviting us to do. It is the way of Jesus. Paul encourages us with this, saying it is the way of Jesus. Remember Jesus? Jesus on the next slide, it says that Jesus, uh, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to the people. Then he continues and he says, now it says that he ascended. So clearly if he ascended, it means that he must have descended at some point. So clearly Christ also descended down into our lowly world. It is the way of Jesus that in order to grow up, you go down. In order to help other people get to those higher places, you go beneath to the floor. You speak with them. You encourage them. Instead of seeing with the eyes on our head, we begin to see with the eyes on our hearts. Paul talks about the eyes of our hearts in the book of Ephesians as well. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. Where he says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those he has called. Now, in the original Greek, what it's literally saying there when it talks about that your heart would experience light, it would mean you would actually have eyes on your heart that would open up and start to see the world. The eyes on our head oftentimes look out for things that keep us safe. The eyes on our head oftentimes look out for the things that we can take advantage of. The eyes on our head oftentimes look out for ourselves. But the eyes of our hearts are secure because we know that God's holy people, the one whom Jesus came for, those are his rich and glorious inheritance. This is our hope. This is our security. It's not about what we can fill our minds with, but instead it is what we can share through our hearts, experience in our hearts, express from our hearts. Growing up oftentimes means growing deeper. See with your heart. When was the last time that you trusted God enough to see with your heart? When was the last time you trusted anybody enough to see with your heart? My mom's the one who taught me how to swim. And when she was teaching me how to swim, she was trying to teach me how to jump into the, the deep end. And I was terrified. I was probably five or six years old. And my mom is treading water in the deep end. And she's saying, Danny, jump to me. I've got you. Danny, just jump to me. I'm like, I can't. I'm scared. I'm terrified. Are you serious? I can't touch the bottom of that. What if there's monsters underneath there? I can't do this. The way that she finally got me to jump is she said, stand right on the edge, close your eyes, and jump forward. I'll catch you. Just close your eyes, jump forward, and I'll catch you. I'm like, but then I won't be able to see. 
The point wasn't so that I could see with my own eyes. The point was that so she could see me. What's more important in that situation, that I could see my mom, that I could see everything around me, or the one who was going to catch me, that she could see me? Later on in the text in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul also tells us that Jesus is the, um, the head of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body of the Christ. He's the one who has the knowledge. He's the one who has the eyes. He's the one who can see the things we don't see. He's the one who can understand the things that we can't understand. And he's the one who tells us, jump. You can close the eyes of your head. Stop looking out for yourself and your own security and everything that you might be able to take advantage of in this world. But instead, see me with the eyes of your heart. Close the eyes of your head for one moment and trust me and open the eyes of your heart and experience the light of this world that I've created. And now you will not just fill your head with things you can comprehend, but instead your life will be full of experiences and you will be able to express things in and through your heart that will draw you to other people and that will draw them closer to me, Jesus is teaching us. Open the eyes of your heart and jump. Do you trust God like that? Do you trust God like that? Because the truth is, is oftentimes when we see with the eyes of our, of our heads, When we see with the eyes that are directly attached to our minds, we're filled with judgment, aren't we? We think, oh, well, we're we're determining other people's maturity. We're determining if they're grown up enough. We're determining if we can hang out in the same circles based on what they look like, based on where they're from, based on what we can see on the surface. But the eyes of our hearts, those are like magnetic toward one another, aren't they? The eyes of our heads, I mean, they oftentimes just make us resent one another. Whatever we see, whatever we hear, whatever our first impression is. It's one thing to know things about people, but it's another thing to care about them in our heart. Grow deeper. Draw closer. At Hope, uh, this is probably 20 years ago, uh, the leadership team created this thing called the Hope Circle. And the purpose of the Hope Circle is to help us understand what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the life cycle like for a Christian? And you might notice something about this. There's no beginning or end. It's just a circle, right? Like there's no starting point and ending point. There's no stairway. There's no destination. There's no arrival. But instead, it's circular. And each lap might look different, but nonetheless, it's circular. It keeps on drawing us together with one another. And so maybe we start off and we say, well, I'm a seeker. I'm just asking questions. I'm digging deeper. I'm trying to figure out more. We ask those questions. We start to run into some answers. And then we go from seeker to believer, from believer to follower, because we're starting to attach to it. It, stops, it, it goes from our, our head into our heart. And then from our head to our heart, we become a follower. And then follower to servant leader, because we realize I can't just keep it here. But instead, now it's actually going even deeper, and it's gone down to my feet and I can't stay the same. So it goes from our head to our heart to our feet and now we're mobile. And now we're mobile and we don't just stop there but instead we approach more seekers. We approach more questions. And then when we approach more seekers we approach more questions. We don't approach them thinking I've got it all for you but instead it's wait a second that's a question I've wondered about too. We've got a class that's starting tomorrow night and it's called Alpha and it's a question. It's a class that's all about questions. The logo for the class is literally a giant question mark. Sometimes we talk about Alpha and we say that it's a great way to jumpstart your faith. It's a great way to introduce, uh, to introduce yourself to faith and to know about the basics of Christianity. But I will also say this. If you've been in a part of the Christian faith your entire life, it is a way to reignite your faith. 
Because it is good for you. It is a mature thing to do. It is spiritually mature to continue to ask questions. Not to ever believe that we've arrived, but instead as we go around this circle, we realize the only place that I get to is more questions. And someday, someday those questions will be answered. But this side of heaven, it's okay not to know everything. It's okay to start in seeking, to start believing, to start following, and then to servant lead. To have hearts, to have eyes in our hearts that draw us to one another. This is the way of Jesus. This is how Jesus draws us together. There's nothing wrong with having information in our mind, but don't let it stay there. Grow deeper. Let it come into your heart. In our mind, we know things. In our heart, we care about things. And with our feet, we do things. We do things. So what's the litmus test? How can we keep our church in check? How can we keep our congregation in check to know, are we doing this? Paul provides that toward the end of this passage that you heard today. Again, this is in Ephesians chapter 4, and this is in 11. It says, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. And he talks about different roles in the church. He talks about pastors and apostles and teachers and evangelists and prophets. Now, the truth, maybe you're like, okay, well, I'm none of those things. How do I fit into the church? The truth is, is that in other works of Paul, he lists all sorts of other different roles in the church. This is just specifically five or six roles that he lists here. So don't feel like you have to fit in with one of those specific roles. There's a place for you in the body of Christ. There is a place for you in the body of Christ. But whatever that role is, whatever that job is, whatever it is that you are able to fulfill God's purpose for you within the body of Christ, it has this common purpose with everyone around you. Their responsibility, no matter what job it is, is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. To build up the church, the body of Christ. Not to build up ourselves, not to look a certain way, not to fill our minds, but instead to build up the body of Christ. The text continues, and this is where it starts to get even more convicting for us. Then we will no longer be immature. What will it look like when we're not, be, when we're not immature? We won't be tossed and blown about by every new teaching. When people try to trick us with lives, with li that says lives, but it's supposed to say lies. It's a lying word. Lies, so clever that they sound like truth. It is so easy and it is so dangerous to walk through this life by ourselves, to think that we can figure it out on our own because my mind is filled with enough knowledge. And I believe that that's one of the ways that the devil traps us. Alone, isolated, filled with temptation, alone. But how beautiful it is when the body of Christ comes together. I mean, we think, oh, well, spiritual maturity, are you just starting to tell me that's just all about feelings? I shouldn't know anything at all. No, of course you should. It says right here. I mean, part of having spiritual maturity is when you're in the body of Christ, you have wisdom. But you have wisdom through unity. And unity's become this word that people are like sick of these days for some reason. We like roll our eyes at unity. We become so cynical about unity. Well, I could be unified with some people, but there are others who we all know are a lost cause. And depending on which side of the political aisle that you fall on, you might think that someone or another is a lost cause. And oftentimes we'll proof text the Bible and say, well, see? See, Jesus is fed up with those people. You are falling for an awful trick. And you might think you're wise, but you've fallen into foolishness. 
And if you would read the Bible in its entirety, you would see that the life that God calls us to, and in order for, for us to live that life to the fullest, we are humble. We are patient with one another, even if they take a long time to grow up. And we are binded together in peace. God's given us all the tools we need to resist evil. Do not underestimate the power of the person next to you or the power of the person on the other side of the world that you have nothing in common with other than the very fact that Jesus loves you both. How convicting is this? The person that you have the biggest problem with or the group of people that you have the biggest problem with in the world Jesus thinks just as highly of them as he does of you. And the person in this world that you think has made it, the person in this world that you think has everything, the person in this world that you think could never be improved because they are mature, they are wise, Jesus thinks just as much of you as he thinks of them. Oftentimes in this world, we're take, we, we take comfort or whatever when somebody says, oh, you couldn't do anything that would make me love you less. But Jesus loves you perfectly. And therefore, there's nothing you could do that would make him love you more. He loves you perfectly. The eyes of our heads will oftentimes look out for the things that can make us seem or be a little better but the eyes of our hearts come face to face with the Savior who says, there's nothing you could do. You couldn't do anything better to make me love you better than I already do. It's true for you and it's true for the person next to you and it's true for the person on the other side of the world. This is the insane thing about Christianity. In a world where nothing ever seems to stick, in a world where nothing seems to be consistent, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus is consistent, and he's also consistent among us. He's consistent for each person, and that is why throughout the history of the world, every single culture, every single type of people, every single language that is spoken, no matter where it is, Christianity sticks. And it's not because of a policy it's not because of legalism. It's not because of doctrine. It's not because of studies. It's not because of our heads. It's not because of our brains. It's not because of our knowledge. It's because the power of the Holy Spirit sticks. God doesn't just know about you in his head. God cares for you in his heart. So he comes into low places so we could grow up with him. Don't be fooled by the clever lies of the devil that tries to tell you you're too different from someone else to be in the same place as them. Hear me clear on this. Our differences ought to be appreciated and celebrated. Dr. Seuss once said, and I think it's true, today you are you. That is truer than true. And no one is youer than you. God knew it first. To God, you are you. And to God, no one is youer than you. And to God, that is true, so to us, it is true. Celebrate the differences. 
We're not asking each other just to hop into this melting pot where we all become the same thing. No, there's a difference between sameness and oneness, isn't there? Sameness is this idea that we all have to behave the exact same way and think the same way to hang out in the same places. But oneness is where diversity exists. Not just for the sake of gathering, but for the sake of being one. Paul concludes Ephesians chapter 4 by saying, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow, healthy, full of love. Spiritual maturity does not mean you have to look a certain way. Spiritual maturity does not mean you need to know everything. Spiritual maturity instead takes humility It takes unity. It takes love. It's not easy, but the results are unmatchable. Wisdom, unity, coordination. Coordination, what an underrated word. Two years ago at our vacation Bible school, in West Des Moines. It was before we ever had our vacation Bible school here. I was volunteering as a junior shepherd. So this was probably, gosh, 10, 12 years ago. And there was a, a boy who was like doing this with his hands. I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, my hands are playing a game against each other. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, one hand tries to get past the other, but I won't let it. And the goal is to get one hand past the other. Doesn't it ever feel like the body of Christ is acting like that? Like fighting each other? Come on. We can have candid conversation. We can be real with one another. We can disagree. I mean, my goodness, Jesus' disciples disagreed with him. One of them so much that he betrayed him and turned him, to, turned him into the government. Jesus' own family said, I don't think you're the Messiah. It never influenced the way that Jesus loved those people who thought he was too different. You know, that's the beautiful thing about love. Once you make up your mind to love, no one can really stop you, can they? They tried to stop Jesus, right? His disciple betrayed him. His family rejected him. The government tried him. They whipped him. They beat him. They hung him to a cross. They took his life. But the one thing they couldn't take from him was his decision to love you. He was humble. He was bound together with his Father in peace. He was wise chose to be united with us. He is the head of the body. He sees the things we can't see. He understands the things we don't understand. So that together, in a coordinated effort, we get to experience life. We get to see it with the eyes of our heart and express the love of God to the world around us. Grow up. Be healthy.
love. Receive wisdom. Work in harmony and coordination with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And see how many join you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.